0: This is Professor Allen, and welcome to The Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue or two from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 87th episode of The Quarterbin, we're looking at Dr. Fate 1 and 2, cover dated July and August 1987. These do represent the first half of a four-issue miniseries. And yes, next episode will wrap up the miniseries. But first, let me explain how we got to having these issues in the episode. We ran, a few months ago, a Facebook and Twitter contest, And the lucky numbers provided by Radio Free Asgard's Tom Harris were selected. Congratulations, Tom. One of the numbers that he selected translated, technically speaking, into issue three of this miniseries. But since I had all four, I figured we would just cover the whole thing. So this episode, issues one and two. Next episode, issues three and four. The other number that Tom selected, that will be the book covered in episode 90. But first, not going to go over feedback here. What I want to do is talk about the recent ebb and flow in the access that I have to quarter bins. I'm going to talk in a bit of detail about the sources that I have for super cheap comics and how the number of sources has greatly declined during 2016. As I said before, it all started one afternoon when I was driving through the business district of the town where I teach. Most days I bypass that part of town. But this fortuitous day, I saw that sign in the window. 25 cent comic sale. And my fate was sealed. My first purchase from that store, in the ballpark, was books to listen along with podcasts, most notably from crisis to crisis. But as happens to so many podcast listeners, the airborne virus took hold of me. And I began to podcast myself, of course, about those quarter books. What they would do is have, every three months, they would have Quarterly, Quarter Bin Sales, where they would drag out, must have been 30 or 40 long boxes, everything a quarter. It was glorious. So for a number of years, In the Ballpark was my only source of quarter books. I wasn't keeping track of this at the time, but I would guess that the first 50 podcast episodes were made up of books exclusively from those in-the-ballpark quarterly quarter-bin sales. But at some point a few years ago, I learned that five of the six half-price books locations in my reasonable driving distance had comic books, and four of those five had at least some quarter-books. The way that these stores work, at least the ones in our region, is that the standard unmarked books, the ones that are organized like alphabetically with dividers, they're all a buck. Though more on that shortly. Most of the stores also have clearance comics tossed into boxes under the nice organized dollar books. Depending on the specific store, these could be priced at either 25 or 50 cents, and at some stores they mixed in 25 and 50 cent books. Now, let me repeat a pro tip that I've given before on the podcast. And that is that the awesomest, superest bargains that I've ever gotten from discount bins, I got from Half Price Books. Those almost new five issues of Loki, Agent of Asgard. The issue of Black Hawk from 1958. And also some books I've talked about on Comics Reading Journal. I picked up seven of the first eight issues of Lumberjanes. For 25 cents at half-price books. I just think that... Forgive me, Mike Gillis. The folks at half-price books just didn't know what they had with these issues. They just slapped the yellow 25-cent sticker on these and moved on. These would have never been that cheap at a comic book store. So scour the used bookstores, the flea markets. Any place where, let's be honest, amateurs are selling comic books. You may get some terrific deals... So things were pretty great for a couple of years, when I had both half-priced books and in the ballpark as sources of cheap comics. But when I stumbled upon world's greatest comics, on Free Comic Book Day 2015, things got even better. This store always has anywhere from five to ten long boxes of quarter books, and they rotate new stuff into these bins pretty regularly. So 12 months ago, man oh man, I was flying high. There was a chain of bookstores dotted across the city with quarter bins. An LCS with a bunch of quarter bins. And another LCS that had four week-long quarter bin sales per year. But then, one day I walked into one of those half price book locations, one that was on the the far side of the city, and I saw the dreaded sign. All unmarked comics. Two dollars. Yep, they had doubled the price of their standard back issue. And yes, the clearance books were now a buck. I was shocked, shocked, shocked! Well, actually I was bummed, bummed, bummed. Now, this was a location, like I said, on the other side of town. And I managed to actually hit two more half-price books on the way home that day and it was indeed a new policy across the region. I mean, I just had to confirm that. Now, a few of the stores kept their their current stash of 25-cent comics at 25 cents, with new arrivals coming in at the new prices. But by now, six-plus months later, there's not a quarter book left in any of those stores. But that wasn't so bad, because I still had World's Greatest Comics and in the ballpark. Then as this last summer went by and the August sale and In the Ballpark was approaching, I figured this was my chance to get back in the swing of things in terms of buying quarter bin sales, back in in my element and all that, back where it all started. But I noticed on their Facebook page that they hadn't mentioned the sale yet as of the week before. And I drove by the store one day in early August, and there was no sign, no banner. On their Facebook page, someone, not me, cross my heart, asked about this. And they said that they were too busy to do the August sale, but that the November one was definitely going to happen. Well, same thing three months later, except that they kept posting updates about their remodeling project inside the store. They did drive by the store in late October, and they were definitely remodeling. Well, as it turns out, In the Ballpark wasn't doing the remodeling. The comic store that had bought them was remodeling. This is an LCS in another town that was expanding. But they pretty quickly announced that they were discontinuing the quarter bin sale tradition. Now once they reopen with the new store in charge, the new name and all that, I'll stop by to see if they have some sort of discount boxes. I have an open mind. But the end of the regular sales is a total bummer. For one thing, that was something Emily and I would do. She would join me a couple of times a year at those, even brought along some other of her geeky friends to raid the 25-cent bins. It was a social event as much as a comic book event. But along with the half price books situation, it was a double gut punch. Now let me emphasize that this is not a complaint. I understand that I am hashtag blessed to have had so many sources of cheap comics, both for my own reading and for the podcast. And I still have World's Greatest Comics. Of course, the database still has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books from Half Price and in the ballpark. So there's no risk of running out of content for the podcast anytime soon. So no fear on that account. But it does look like, from this point on, all of the new books that hit the database are going to have to come from World's Greatest. And that's actually fine with me. It's a pretty nice store. Both the owner and the main guy that works there are friendly, pretty nice, actually helpful. And the store, though having a really small footprint, has a pretty good amount of stuff in it. Including, of course, a bunch of quarter boxes. So there is that. Well, I feel much better getting that off my chest. Thank you, dear listener, for your patience. And the fact that you don't charge nearly as much as a licensed therapist would. So I'm going to take a break here, now that you've helped me clear my head, now that I've gotten in better mental space, I'm definitely ready to talk some Dr. Fate. And we'll go ahead and do that right after this. This is the Allfather Odin, and you should be listening to Radio Free Asgard. No, no, that's just not going to work. Let's try this again. This is the evil Loki, and if you hate Thor as much as I do, you should be... All right, let's just try one more thing. Jane Foster here, and you should be... Uh, risen. All right, let's just keep this simple. Hello, everybody. My name is Tom Harris, and I do a podcast called Radio Free Asgard, which airs every Thursday over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. We cover the adventures of Thor, Hercules, and more from ancient times all the way up into the present day. We read old comics and make fun of them. I do ridiculous voices and generally make an ass of myself. So if that sounds fun to you, you should come join us, the only Thor podcast hosted by a true descendant of Odin, over at RadioFreeAsgard.com. And we'll see you there. And we're back. Because these two issues flow right from one into the other, we're going to summarize both of them here in this segment and then discuss both of them together later in the episode. So Dr. Fate, numbers one and two, each had cover prices of $1.50, meaning I acquired each of them at a nice healthy 83% discount. The cover of issue one by Keith Giffen shows Dr. Fate in his yellow and blue outfit, although his yellow trunks seem to be pulled up really high on his torso. But he is standing fists clenched in a snowy field, and he looks tough. Which is good, because as the two tech circles tell us, it is a war he cannot win. And when he loses, so do we all. The story, Cycles, was written by J.M. DeMatteis, with art by Keith Giffen and Dave Hunt. We start in the snow-swept setting from the cover. Come out, Dr. Fate says to the Lord of Chaos, known as Typhon. He battles some monstrous green demon things, minions of Typhon. But Fate wants the Lord of Chaos, not his murdering children. He hungers to defeat them. For weeks now, they've been walking among men, devouring minds and hearts and souls, spreading lunacy. I can't allow that. He power blasts green demon after green demon finally bringing down the Lord of Chaos itself. You did that with one enchantment, Typhon says, impressed. But I couldn't expect any less from an immortal Lord of Order. Unless, of course, the rumors I've heard are true. The rumors are that Dr. Fate may not be as immortal as he once was. That Kent Nelson's body is breaking down. That he can be killed. I tell you to go to hell, fate quips, but you're already there. And just as our hero is ready to defeat Typhon, he is suddenly spirited away to the realm of the Lords of Order. They wonder why he's so distressed being back home. They worry that he's forgotten his fellow Lords of Order. He has been brought back because his battle was useless. Because all battle is useless because the war with chaos has been lost. The lords tell Dr. Fate that reality has now entered the fourth age of man, after about 864,000 years. They are now in the Kali Yuga when chaos rises triumphant, when the forces of destruction grow in fury, when the universe dissolves in fire. The essence of fate that disembodied Lord of Order Nabu is not willing to accept this fate. He wants to fight. I reject your grand design. I will not let this come to pass. Nabu is told that he can no longer continue using Kent Nelson as the host body. In the Kaliyuga, host bodies don't last as long as they used to. Without warning, Nabu is sent back to Earth. In New York, Linda Strauss goes for a walk in Central Park with her 10-year-old stepson, Eric. It's time he started playing with kids his own age. He's not all that wild about this plan. He understands Linda, and she understands him. He's an old soul in a very young body, a good and pure soul. From the day she first laid eyes on that child, there was something, a bond. It's like she knew him, knew all about him, like she's known forever. Forever. Linda reminisces about marrying Eric's millionaire father, that soulless bastard. No wonder his first wife killed herself. But she felt bad about her husband dying of cancer. Ah, the memories. Eric? Oh God, no! Eric! The wise old soul has wandered away and met the aging Kent Nelson, who takes the ten-year-old with him to the Tower of Fate in Salem. Somehow, Eric has been waiting for Nelson to come to him for a long time. He brings him to the Tower of Fate. The essence of Nabu now represents itself as an oversized mouth in the center of Kent Nelson's stomach. Eric knows the Lords of Order. He's had visions of them all his life. Opening his belly mouth, Nabu issues forth a wave of energy that instantly ages Eric Strauss to adulthood. He is now prepared to train Eric as the new reservoir for the power of fate. Eric Strauss, now cloaked in the Dr. Fate gear, travels to New York to resume the battle with Typhon, who plans to crush his bones and feast upon his corpse. Linda watches the battle from the window of her apartment. Somehow she senses Eric's presence inside of Fate. Nabu guides Eric in his battle, but Strauss just hasn't had enough training. He's not used to his new body. He, he's not prepared for this fight. Nabu seems to abandon him at a critical moment, leaving Eric in really bad shape, physically and mentally. He keeps repeating, I am Eric Strauss, I am Eric Strauss. Typhon seems to consume this new Dr. Fate, and then he disappears. Moments later, Dr. Benjamin Stoner of Arkham Asylum finds Eric Strauss, cold and naked, shivering in the snow, just repeating his name over and over, claiming to be ten years old. And the doctor takes him to Arkham Asylum. You're in good hands, Eric. The doctor will take care of you. And behind the darkened tower, an old man stands over a grave, drops to his knees, and weeps. The cover of Issue 2, again by Giffen, shows the helmet of fate front and center. The helmet is smoking, being held up by ugly green claws. In the background are some of those ugly demon things from last issue, the minions of Typhon. The story, Asylum, was again written by J.M.D. Mateus with Art Again, by Keith Giffen and Dave Hunt. We start with Dr. Kent Nelson, wandering in the snow outside the Tower of Fate. He thinks about his unusual childhood, his mother always flying off to Paris, and his father with the archaeology. What were they thinking, bringing along their 12-year-old son on a Sumerian expedition? What they wanted 45 years ago was for us to walk to that tomb so Nabu could strike my father down and take me, usurp me. I went from a boy to a man in days, and then from a man to Dr. Fate. Nabu killed his father, Kent realizes. Nabu killed my father and I never cared. I still don't care. I just accepted it like I've accepted everything that's happened these past 45 years. He remembers Inza, how the enchantments that kept him young did the same for her. Perpetually 21, perpetually beautiful. Nabu interrupts his reminiscing by speaking to Kent from his belly m- mouth telling him he dwells too long on death, when life still has demands. Death will come for you soon enough, Nabu promises, I assure you. In Arkham Asylum, Dr. Stoner comes for a little chat with Eric. Eric wants to go home, and Stoner promises that he can after he finds out what he, what they, want to know. Actually, I've got quite a different home in mind for you. He points out that there's only one safe place for Eric. The arms of madness. In the war between chaos and order, chaos is winning. Dr. Stoner just has a few simple questions. Where's the helmet? Where's the amulet? Where's the power? Linda wakes up screaming Eric's name. She knows that he's alive. She has to find him. She heads out on the highway, confused about her feelings for Eric, but knowing that he's alive and that she has to find him. In Arkham, Eric hears all the ramblings of all the lunatics there, including Dr. Stoner, who is feeding his blood to those demon minion things. But amidst all the crazy Eric hears from Kent, Eric, please listen to me. Naboo and I, we're here to help you. He wants Linda, though. Kent tells him that only by opening himself to Naboo can the pain be taken away. Eventually, Naboo does take control of Eric. And Dr. Fate escapes his cell. He fights his way past more minions, exploding them with power when they tell him that Linda's dead. He makes it to Dr. Stoner's office. Well done, Fate. You dispatched our little roadblocks with admirable efficiency. Fate wants to know where the Lord of Chaos, where Typhon is. It's time he met his death. The game is over. Stoner reveals that Typhon has taken over him in much the same way that Nabu has taken over Strauss. They fight, and we learn in the narrative that the amulet, the helmet, and the costume are no longer separate entities, but parts now of the host body. Typhon defeats Fate, claiming Fate's amulet and helmet for Dr. Stoner. You will be our champion, the mortal agent of the Lords of Chaos. We return to the Tower of Fate to Kent Nelson, He is not ready to die yet, not until Nabu sets things right. You're evil, Nabu. All these years I thought I was serving the cause of good, but no. Nabu denies the charge, and they're called back to the realms of the lords of order. The lords actually tell Nabu that he's no longer capable of serving order, and if he can't serve order, he serves chaos. Naboo and Kent Nelson reject all this chaos-and-order mumbo-jumbo and are sent back to the Tower of Fate. Kent hears a female voice. Inza? he asks. But no, it's Linda Strauss. She has been led there by a voice. And Kent has to help her. Help her find Eric. But Eric, it seems, may be in the process of finding them. They think they've beaten me. They think I'm useless. That without the helmet and the amulet, I'm no threat to them. They're wrong. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back! You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for a podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast? Why yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it. Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com? Well, I think you kind of already did. And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly, every two weeks? I was, but you just kind of did that too. Well, see? Now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy... And Chris... Franklin... For the Supermates of the Husband and Wife geek cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. And we're back, again. These two issues were selected by one podcaster, Tom Harris, of Radio Free Asgard, as I mentioned before. But they were put in my hands by another podcaster if you're not satisfied with the way this episode is working out, the man to blame is the irredeemable Shag. Back in August, Shag managed to pry the ankle bracelet off, and he was able to make another swing throughout the country, meeting geeks all along the way. conversation that I had with Shag, Little Russell Burbage, and Aaron Bias at dinner that evening is available as part of episode 180, of the Fire and Water podcast. But our evening started at a location of the aforementioned half price books. And I managed to score what I am convinced were the last bunch of actual quarter books in any Central Ohio location of that chain. Most of the other boys found 50 centers or went through the two-buck books, but I found all four of these Dr. Fate issues with the magic 25-cent sticker on them all. I also found the five-issue Dr. Fate mini from 2003. So it was nine issues of The Good Doctor, two full minis for just over two bucks. And since Shag was with me, and I know that he's a big fan of Dr. Fate, I ran these issues by him, and he heartily approved. Yes, he did describe this particular series as impenetrable, or maybe incomprehensible, but he didn't tell me not to buy it or not to read it, or not to cover it on the Quarterbin Podcast. Actually, I'm pretty sure he did say I shouldn't cover it on the Quarterbin Podcast, but let's not worry about details like that, of uh, facts like that right now, okay? I think that the important part to keep in mind is that these next two episodes are on Shag. Unless you think they're really good, in which case they're on me and Tom Harris, well, it's been long enough. Let's finally talk about these issues. I mentioned that these had a $1.50 cover price, and these books were in the deluxe format, meaning the paper quality is higher, there are an extra four or five pages a story, and the book is priced at double the going price for DC's standard books, most of which during these same months were $0.75, cents, although a few went for a buck. A lot of the deluxe format books of this era were of the more mature nature. Longbow Hunters, Watchmen, The Question, Vigilante, and The Shadow were just a few of the other deluxe titles sold in these same months. And I think the denseness of this story, the intricacies of the Lords of Order and Lords of Chaos, the overall strangeness of the story is De trying to figure out what a mature comic book story should be. And I give them some credit for this. There's that joke that most mature comics are mature in the way that a 12-year-old boy thinks is mature. Nudity and blood, bad language. And even though there is some creepiness going on here, we'll talk about that, there's not any nudity or blood or bad language. The version of maturity That Demetrius is operating under is a mature definition of maturity. I think he's trying to tell a grown-up story. I mean, this is about aging and death. Legacy and responsibility. And a little thing I like to call the nature of reality. It's heady stuff. And we're a year or so out from Grant Morrison taking over Animal Man. So this is early on in this attempt to tell grown-up, adult, mature stories, however you want to describe that. And what Demetrius and, of course, Keith Giffen are doing here is the sort of stuff that Morrison would make a career out of, would become a superstar doing. Not that this is as good as the best of Morrison, but it is ambitious. There is something to be said for that. But as much as I like ambition, I actually prefer clarity. Clarity in storytelling, which these two issues are lacking, as well as clarity in the art, which I just don't think is what Giffen is going for with this work. I'm guessing that I'm probably somewhere around 80% accurate with my interpretation of events, of what I described in those summaries, synopses from the prior segment. I tried to sound confident, but I am not totally sure that the events took place as I described them where I described them, or even with the characters that I described. I haven't read the last two issues of the mini yet, although I know from general geek osmosis a bit of what to expect. And there are two plot things I need to talk about here. At the end of issue two, Kent Nelson appears to still be alive. I'm pretty sure that's not going to be the case after issue four. So I'm kind of dreading that, just not looking forward to that happening or how that's going to be handled. And two, all the groundwork has been laid in these two issues for the creep factor between Linda and Eric to go to 11. I know that the series is infamous for the weirdness of that stepmom, stepson thing. What I don't know is exactly how creepy it will actually get from here. So I'm also kind of dreading that. The other big issue... I had with the issues, is Giffen's art here. I mentioned it in passing before, but let me just give a little more detail here. At this point in time, Giffen's style was changing from the clean, slick, classic comic book lines that he had produced before. His style from here on is very loose, very impressionistic. I don't really have the right artistic vocabulary to describe this any better, but let's just say that the art matches the confusing and penetrable nature of the story. So in a sense, it's a good fit, but in another sense, it does not add the clarity that I want from the story. There's a reason that Frank Quitely's clear, clean style is such a compliment for Morrison's sometimes esoteric writing style. But here, the combo of hard-to-understand story and hard-to-understand art makes the whole thing a little trickier to figure out. The individual renderings aren't bad, they're consistent, although Fate's trunks come up absurdly high. That waistband is hitting somewhere between his navel and his nipples. But the oddness of that choice is of a piece with the rest of the impressionistic art here. And that sort of works on covers or on splash pages, but I had trouble making sense of the storytelling aspect, the serialized connections between the panels and DeMatteis' script was not helping bring clarity to that either. It was a challenge to make sense of. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm not sure that this communicated to me what the creators intended it to communicate. I do want to add that each of these issues had, unfortunately, tributes to recently passed away comics legends. I enjoy the publishorials, the meanwhile columns, when stuff like that appears. But obviously, these are different. And even after almost three decades, these are sad. In issue one, there's a tribute to Gardner Fox, written by Roy Thomas. And if there's anybody perfectly suited to write a tribute to a classic golden age writer, it is Roy Thomas. It's a very nice piece about the professional contributions that Fox made to the industry, but also the personal contributions that he made to Thomas in his career. Issue 2 included a tribute to longtime comics writer E. Nelson Bridwell by Dick Giordano. It talked about how much Bridwell loved comics, loved Superman, and knew everything there was to know about the Man of Steel and most of the rest of the DC characters to boot. And you know, as melancholy as these columns were, they did have an oddly grounding effect to these particularly out-there stories. The verdict on Dr. Fate 1 and 2, these were interesting, challenging, ambitious. I am intrigued by the notion of finishing up the series, so I guess by definition, these issues worked. They achieved their goal, they did what they were intended to do, which is to say, make me read the rest of the series. Yes, they were a little hard to decipher, and I'm nervous, hesitant about some aspects of the story but I do want to see what happens. And I do want to see how it happens. So there's a bit of an incomplete at this point for the grade right here, halfway through the story. But I can't give an incomplete on the podcast. So I guess that I think these are worth a quarter each. That wraps up my somewhat mixed and indecisive coverage of Dr. Fate 1 and 2, bringing episode 87 of the Quarterbin podcast to a close. In episode 88, we're wrapping up coverage of this mini series with Dr. Fate Issues 3 and 4. If you have any questions or comments about these issues, the episode, Dr. Fate, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bins. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and "Short Box Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes will help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Professor Allen!